We know ourselves. We know our hearts. We know the depths of our depravity. And yet your grace is even deeper. Your mercy is even more. Rejoice in a God who does not let us get away with sin, but who loves us so much that he sent his son to pay the penalty for our sin. That by faith alone, we could be saved and have eternal life. And even this evening, as we look to Psalm 50, we pray that we would be challenged and yet that we'd be encouraged by the mercy of this, of you, our great God. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him and shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather, my saints, together to me those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices, or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented to help him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue, to fra- and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before my eyes. Now consider this, you forget God. Now now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Psalm 50 
right from the beginning, it says a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a leader of the Levites under David. And this is his first psalm. Later on in book three of the psalms, he'll have uh, several psalms. Some are written by the sons of Asaph, those who have come after him. Some are written by Asaph himself. Biblical scholars think that Psalm 50 is written by Asaph himself. Psalm 50 stands out from the other psalms around it. It takes a very different um, sound to it. In fact, if you're paying attention, I was reading through that, it might remind you more of a prophetic book than of a psalm. In fact, it's very similar to a book that we were just in several months ago, the book of Malachi. The theme of this psalm is properly understanding sacrifice. And if you remember, when we went through the book of of Malachi, that was the same theme in that book. The problem was that they did not worship God rightly. So as we come up to Psalm 50, the theme is the proper understanding of sacrifice. The setting is almost like a courtroom. And one thing that makes Psalm 50 stands out is God himself is the one who is speaking to his people. In most psalms, it's a psalmist who is speaking to God or for God. In prophetic books, a lot of times it's a prophet who is speaking for God. In Psalm 50, it is God himself who addresses his people. You can break the psalm into... Four parts, verses 1 to 6, a warning, the Lord is coming. Verses 7 to 15, judgment for formulaic worship. Verses 16 to 21, judgment uh, for, for apathy, for, for sin against each other. And then the conclusion, a call to repentance in verse 22 to 23. First thing we see in the first six verses is a warning. The Lord is coming. And notice how the psalm starts. It starts with three names for God lined up right in a row. The mighty God. El is the word there. E-L. The mighty God. And then the next word, God, Elohim. El and Elohim, it's two forms of the same name for God. It's a general word for who God is. He is the God. So in essence, what you have here is God, God, Yahweh, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. It starts with the most general and works to the most specific. Yahweh, Israel's God. It is this God who has spoken. He's called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. This God is creator. The earth is his. When he speaks, the earth responds. It listens. The whole world is called to pay attention. And notice in verse 2, it zeroes in though. It starts with the whole world from the rising of the sun to its going down. The whole world, but out of Zion. It focuses in on Jerusalem. Really, we see the same thing in the end of verse 1 into verse 2 that we see in the names of God that are given in the beginning of verse 1. It starts general, the whole world, and then zeroes in on God's people. He is God, creator, 
God, he is Yahweh. He is Israel's God. Same thing. Whole world. Look, pay attention. Hear. And then it zooms in. But out of Zion, God will shine forth. As you work your way through this psalm, you see that this is not a psalm of good news, necessarily. It's a psalm of judgment. God is coming to judge his people. That is the purpose for this coming. It's almost as if God is calling the earth to come and watch. Israel, if you will not glorify me through your obedience, then you will glorify me as the world watches me judge you. The whole world is gathered. But out of Zion, the perfection of beauty focuses in on Jerusalem. God will shine forth. The scene does not take place in heaven. God doesn't call them to him. He comes to them. God in his majesty and in his power comes to earth, to his people, to Jerusalem, to Zion. Her God shall come and shall not keep silent. And his coming is not peaceful. A fire shall devour before him. It shall be very tempestuous all around him. This is not a good coming. This is not something that God's people are excited about. There's judgment that comes. I remember as a kid, I, I, I used to love when my dad would, would get home. There was a time when my dad worked for FedEx and he would drive his truck home and I thought it was the coolest thing when he drove that truck home. I used to, to love when he would bring it home. But then later, as my dad started his own business and uh, he was working uh, late at night, a lot of times he wouldn't be there for, for dinner. He, was a, he had a janitorial business. He was out all night cleaning. So when he did get home at a decent time, it was, it was fun, it was exciting, it was good. There were times I didn't necessarily look forward to it, though. We've probably all been in trouble at a time when our mom said, just wait until your dad gets home. Those aren't days when you're necessarily excited for your dad to come home. That's not, that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, it's, it's a good thing that your mom loves you enough to do that. But you're not looking forward to it. It's not that you don't love your dad. You don't want to see him. You just don't want to see him in those circumstances. That's what's going on here. Israel's God is coming. But he's coming to judge. He's coming with with fire that will devour before him. He's coming in a, with, with, with tempestuous all around him. This is chaotic language. This is not a place you want to be. Notice secondly, not only does he call uh, in verse 1 the nations to come and watch, he calls the heavens above the earth that he may judge his people. The heaven and the earth are called as witnesses. So you can imagine the, the, the setting, kind of a courtroom. God is standing there before his people. And the courtroom is now filled with the earth. It's filled with the world from the end to the other end. It's filled with the heavens. And it's filled with the world itself. Everyone is watching. Gather my saints together to me. Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. It's a very specific group. It's God's people. It's Israel. But the heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. 
You come to the end of verse 6, God is coming. He's called these witnesses. He's gathered everyone together. Now what is going to happen next? Why is God gathering these people together? What is going on? Verse 7, God introduces himself. Here, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, now testify against you. I am God, your God. He declares here his right not just to gather everyone together, but his right to stand here in judgment before them. I am God, I am your God. And I will testify against you. As you come to verses 8 to 15, the focus is on their formulaic worship. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which... Uh, are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. The idea of these verses is I don't need you. I don't need you. Many viewed worship as a favor to God. Like coming before a, a pagan God who needs sacrifice to sustain them. God needs my sacrifice. God needs it. It is my sacrifice that sustains God, that gives him strength, that keeps him going. God says, no. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, the wild beasts of the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Why? Because the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? I don't need that. I am the God of the universe. I am the God of the world. It's all mine. I don't need you. I don't need your sacrifices. But notice at the same time, God doesn't encourage them to just abandon sacrifices. Rather, it's a call to re-evaluate your sacrifices. The problem here is not the act of sacrifice itself. It's the heart of sacrifice. It's a heart. It must be a heart that recognizes its unworthiness and its total dependence. The heart of sacrifice is not a heart that comes proud before God. It's a heart that comes humble. It's a heart that comes broken. As verse 14 says, it's a heart that comes in thanksgiving. Offer to God your thanksgiving. I don't need you. You need me. Sacrifice is not a favor for God, but a necessary response to God. So what thanksgiving is. Thanksgiving is a response of thanks, an overflow from the heart. It's not a show. It's not just a ritual. That's what God wants. Offer to God thanksgiving. An overflow of thanks, of worship. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Sacrifice is not how God sustains himself. Sacrifice is how an unholy people approach their holy God. 
It's a response to who God is, to the grace that he has shown. So that's the first thing he calls them out. Here in verse 7 to 15, he calls them out for the formulaic worship. It's all for show. They're just going through the motions. And God says, it's about your heart. I don't need you. You need me. Come to me with thanksgiving, with a heart overflowing. Secondly, but in verses uh, 16 to 21, not only is your worship, worship, worship realistic and ritualistic and empty, but your lives are wicked. Look, the wicked, to the wicked, God says. He's still talking to his people. He's still talking to the same people. He doesn't change his audience. What right have you to declare my statutes, to take my covenant in your mouth? This is how wicked you are. You hate instruction. When you see a thief, you consent with him. You're a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Notice in these two charges that God brings, they have broken all ten commandments. In verses 7 to 15, it's the first three. Love God. They haven't loved God right. And verses four, and then the next, verses 16 to 21, it's the next. Commandments 4 to 10. You haven't loved each other right. They claim God's promises, but they don't honor God's name. What right have you to declare my statutes, to take my covenant in your mouth, to claim me as your God? You don't care what I have to say. You don't care. You don't honor me or any of my commandments. What right do you have? You are a fake people. You are a wicked people. Verse 21, these things you have done. And I kept silent. And you thought that I was altogether like you. You thought that because there was no immediate consequences that you had gotten away with it. You assumed that I forgot like you would forget. You assumed that I would overlook it like you might. But I haven't. Another illustration from when I was a kid. Not only did I hate the days where my mom said, just wait until your dad gets home, but there's also those times when we were at the store and I'd be acting up. And my mom would say, just wait until we get home. Remember several times my mom would say that I would, I would be an angel the whole rest of the time we were in the store. I'd be an angel on the way home and I would just be praying, please let my mom forget what I did. Let her see all this good I've done and, and forget about that bad thing I did. God doesn't forget. God doesn't overlook. You thought I was like you, but I will rebuke you and set them to order before my eyes. I think it's important for us to pause here to kind of back out of the psalm and to look at our lives. 
How often do we assume that we've gotten away with sin? When was the last time that you saw, you know, maybe immediate or, or real consequences for a sin in your life? Don't be confused. Don't think that God doesn't see. Don't think that God doesn't know. God doesn't forget. You will never get away with sin. God sees, God knows, God remembers, and God will call you to account. Don't think that you're under the radar. Don't think that God doesn't see. Don't think that God didn't hear that little white lie. He sees. He knows. And just as this day came when he called his people to account, a day will come when you will stand before him. And he will remember that little lie. Little lie. He will remember that gossip. He will remember what you looked at. He will remember what you said. Don't think that God is like us. Just because he keeps silent does not mean that he has changed. He is just. But as you come to the end, verses 22 to 23, you see that yes, God remembers. And yes, God will judge. But God offers mercy. He offers grace. Now consider this, you who've forgotten God. That, that's kind of ironic following verse 21 where he says, I have not forgotten. And then he says, but you forgot me. Consider this, you who've forgotten God lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver you, because I could. The picture here is of a hungry lion that just shreds its prey all over the place. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. To him who orders his conduct aright. Notice there, the first part of that verse, whoever offers praise glorifies me. That's verses 7 to 15. Whoever worships me rightly. Whoever takes serious and understands the call to sacrifice, the call to worship. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. But secondly, verses 16 to 21. And to him who orders his conduct right, who treats others rightly, who lives according to my, what I have commanded. Him who God honors God in his life and in his worship. I will show the salvation of God. I am the mighty one. I am God. I am the Lord. And I am merciful. I remember your sin. And if you turn to me, I will forgive your sin. This psalm that starts with chaos and fire as God comes down and he calls his people before him ends with the promise of mercy and forgiveness if this same people will humble themselves and come to God, will submit to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the same for us. 
How often is our worship ritualistic? We don't have to sacrifice bulls. Praise the Lord that Christ is our perfect sacrifice. How often do we come in here and, and we go through the motions of worship without thinking about what we're doing? How often do we come with the idea that God needs my worship? God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your voice. God doesn't need your talents or your gifts. He chooses to use you if you will submit to him. You need him. Secondly, how do we treat each other? How do we treat people? Do you care what God says? Do you think that you can hide your sin, that you can get away with it, that God doesn't see, that he doesn't know? He sees and he knows. And just as he calls to his people here, won't you turn to him and find forgiveness? Whether that's in salvation for the first time, placing your faith in Christ, whether that's as an old saint who's wandered off and needs to turn to God and find forgiveness again. Find acceptance. He's a merciful God and he's a forgiving God. And I love that such a heavy psalm, a psalm focused on judgment in a courtroom, a song, this psalm that starts with fire and chaos, ends with that same God who brings judgment, offering peace, offering forgiveness. That's who our God is. He's a just God. And he's a merciful God. I hope that that psalm is an encouragement uh, to you or a challenge to you if you need that uh, this evening. Psalm 15.